Thank you. Thank you, uh, Alan. I was actually going to share how at school, that's a typical thing. We have to require our students to have the camera on. Although a lot of times with my students, it's more like this is what I see from them, you know, like the top of their heads. Uh, but it is nice to see your faces. And I am glad to be with you, even if it's by Zoom. Uh, as you've already been told, we are going to begin a series today in the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, if you could turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi is an easy book to find. It's right before Matthew in the New Testament. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, humorously, people have often referred to it as the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Um, but uh, we're uh, going to um, uh, begin our study this week in the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter because there's a flow of thought here that we want to see, and it is not a long chapter. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance with the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. And thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among you who would shut the gates and you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure from my name will be great among the nations. But you are profaning it in that you say, the table of the Lord is, is defiled. And as for its fruit, it is food to be despised. You also say, my how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we have remembered this morning in the breaking of the bread and in the drinking of the wine, 
recognizing his sacrifice for us, that you have loved us. And that love has been demonstrated most eloquently. That on the cross, he bore our sin and shame. He carried our sorrows. He became acquainted with our grief. That we might know joy. That we might experience the peace of God. That we might be justified, sanctified, and glorified in him. And so, Father, as we are here now in your presence, we ask that you might convict us, Lord, and that you might show us how we can revive our hearts by your spirit, that we can uh, do those things, Lord, that will enable us to do the impossible by your grace. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you and ask your blessing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as a teacher, I've been taught to say that there are no stupid or dumb questions. But I must confess, after 33 years of teaching, I'm not so sure there are not dumb or stupid questions. I've often had students ask me at the beginning of a question, I know this might sound dumb, but, and then they go on and ask me their question. Like I said, I'm not sure that there aren't dumb questions. I remember a time many years ago as I was teaching in my class, I was, my back was turned to the class as I was writing something on the board. And as I'm writing something on the board, I smell something. It smells wretched. It is disgusting. And I turn around and I look into the audience and there in the back row, there is a girl who's burning the hair of another student with a lighter. And I look out and I yell, what are you doing? And the student's response is, uh, she asked me to do this. And I said, out, the two of you, out, go to the principal's office. Stupid question. Why? Why? Another example, I was uh, conducting a class. I was giving a test. And during the test, I had a student who had difficult with difficulty with me on a personal level uh she had a grudge against me because i had taught her older siblings and her older siblings had built up my reputation in her head so much so that she was tired of hearing about mr barrett just tired of it tired of it and when she started in my class she had this real passive aggressive attitude where i would tell the students okay take out your notebooks and she'd just sit and stare at me and I just sort of myself, you know what? This is her choice. I'm just going to continue to conduct class. So during one of the first tests I was giving to her class, she raises her hand and that room is very quiet, as you can imagine, during a test. And I walk over to her and I say, uh, yeah, what's going on? What can I help you? She looks at me with all sincerity. She says, do you think I'd get in trouble if I punched you in the face right now? And I said, yeah, I think you would. I think you would get in trouble. Stupid question. Malachi is a book about questions. And in many ways, as you look at the questions, there are going to be moments of time where you might say to yourself, well, that's a dumb question. In fact, the entire structure of the book is built around questions. There's more than 20 questions asked in this tiny little book. Some of the questions are asked by the Lord. Many of them are asked by the Lord. Some of them are asked by the people. It is a question and answer book. It is a teaching method that sometimes is referred to as the dialectic method, where there is a give and take between the teacher 
and the student where questions are asked back and forth to arrive at some kind of conclusion, sometimes referred to in education as the Socratic method, a method of education where you try to elicit the educational moment, the teachable moment by the questions that are asked. It is the framework of this book. It is the way that Malachi's message is presented to us in the word of God. Now, when is Malachi writing this book? Well, we can determine from the context within the book that this is during the post-exile period. For those of you, just as a reminder of the history of Israel, there was a moment in time where the nation of Israel was uh, divided between two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In the uh, 8th century BC, the, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity and led away into slavery by the Assyrians. A little bit more, uh, over a 100 years later or so, the kingdom of Judah itself found itself taken into captivity and carried away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. During that exile period, God ministered to his people through uh, the ministry of the prophet Daniel and Ezekiel. And there was a prophetic promise that after 70 years of captivity, the people would return. And they did return. And under their, under the leadership of Ezra and under the leadership of Nehemiah and the prophetic ministry of prophets like Habakkuk and Zechariah, the people uh, began to rebuild the temple. And then they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And Malachi is writing In that context, the people have returned to the land after the captivity. They have rebuilt the temple. The priesthood is again functioning as prescribed in the Old Covenant. The walls of Jerusalem have been rebuilt, and the city is now again the center of religious life for the nation. However, the kingdom of Judah is no longer independent. It is no longer free. It is under the rule of the Persian Empire. It is governed by a Persian governor. It is not free politically. And this is in the context somewhere around the time after Ezra and Nehemiah have ministered. Most Bible scholars date this book somewhere between around 430 B.C. to about 397 B.C. It is in the context of that world that Malachi delivers his message. Malachi, as the prophet, is unusual, but not necessarily unheard of in the fact that there's very little about him. In fact, we know nothing about him personally, other than his name. There's no mention of his ancestry. We know not what tribe he came from. We know nothing about his family. We know nothing about his occupation. We do not know where he came from whether he came, what town he came from, what village, what city. There's nothing personal about Malachi that's revealed in the prophecy. In addition to that, it is striking to note that his very name means the messenger or my messenger. And that has led some scholars to think that maybe Malachi isn't the name, but the title of the prophet who wrote this. Some have even suggested that it might have been Ezra himself who penned these words. But I'm of the opinion that God raised up a man whose name was Malachi to be the message as well as the messenger. 
that his very presence to the people would be a embodiment of the message that he was given, much like you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That God raised up Malachi to give them the message, and he was called my messenger. So that's some brief comments of introduction to the uh, the book itself. But we're going to take a look at the first chapter together with the time we have remaining and begin to unpackage some of the major themes that occur within this book. The first thing we want to observe is verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word oracle is sometimes translated the burden or the prophecy of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The word literally means burden. It means something weighty. And so the question that we would ask ourselves is why is this referred to as a burden? And may I suggest to us a couple of things that are applicable in the day of Malachi and are also applicable to anyone who opens the word of God today. The first thing that we would observe is why is this a burden? Because there is a weight here. There is something that is heavy about this message. And the first thing we would observe is the weight of responsibility because of the source that this message comes from. This is not Malachi's ideas. This is not Malachi's opinions. This is not his commentary on on the social and cultural and political situation of the nation. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And it was the word of the Lord to Israel. And whenever we open the word of God, whenever we are examining the word of God, those who do so must bear the burden that they are to speak the word of the Lord. They're not to be primarily moved by or governed by their own particular points of view or testing the winds of of change and trend to find out what might make the message popular. The Apostle Peter reinforces this in his letter where he says, whoever speaks, let him do so as an oracle of the Lord or do as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And James will remind us that there should not become many teachers among you, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Why is the message a burden? Because the responsibility of handling the word of God, the responsibility of knowing that there is a message from the Lord that he wants his people to hear. And that requires those who would give that message to know the message, to know what the word of God says, and then to preach the message. You know, we're not really set up. We're not our job as ministers of the gospel, our job as elders, as teachers, even as Christians in general. Our job is not to run a PR campaign for Yahweh. Our job isn't to just sort of find the right spin. And that brings us to the next area of the responsibility, and that is that the message itself is a burden. Why? Because as you go through this book and you read the the message, this message is a burden, an oracle of the Lord, the word that is used by other prophets as a word of judgment against the foreign nations, but this is a message to the audience, the people of God. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. 
It is striking that God uses the name Israel here and not Judah. From a political perspective, Israel, the nation, the northern kingdom no longer exists. That kingdom disappeared. But there has been always a remnant of those tribes. Those tribes were not, quote unquote, lost. God knows where they are and who they are. But he is referring now to the covenant name of his people, Israel, the covenant name of his people, all of those people, not the political Israel, not the political Judah, but all with whom he've made a covenant. And it is a burden to them to hear this word because the message is one that is indictment. You are guilty. You are guilty. When you read the book of Malachi and you think about the context in which it's written, it is striking to me that here is God fulfilling his word. He prophesied that they would be taken into captivity and then God fulfills that promise. The people are delivered out of captivity. They're able to go back under Cyrus to return and rebuild Jerusalem, and they're able to rebuild the wall. And God has given them this great opportunity to once again renew their devotion to the one true God. But yet, a short time later, after the ministry of Ezra, after the ministry of Habakkuk, after the ministry of Zechariah, here they are after Nehemiah's great leadership. Sometime later, Here they are, and they are adrift again spiritually. They're adrift again spiritually. No, they're not bowing down to Baal. They're not worshiping the Ashtoreths. No, the Babylonian captivity cured the Jews of their polytheism forever. It's one of the hurdles they have when it talks about Jesus, because in their mind, it's just sort of a polytheistic religion with the Trinity. They don't understand it. But after the captivity, they were never going to be bowing down anymore to Baal or the Ashtaroths or any of the gods of Egypt or of Rome or of Greece. They were going to be rapidly monotheistic. But in their monotheism, already they have drifted. In their monotheism, they've already left their first love. And it's striking to me that when you look at this book and you look at this book, it's the last book of the old covenant. It's the last word to God's people before the word of prophecy ends. And what does he say to his people? You have left your first love. You are lukewarm. Judgment is coming. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, What is the message of the last book of the new covenant? What is the message of the last word of prophecy in the New Testament? It is you've left your first love. You are lukewarm. Judgment is coming. Prepare for the coming of the Lord. We are so prone to spiritual drift. We are so prone to it. We are the embodiment of the hymn writer's cry. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that is why, that is why 
because spiritual drift is inevitable, spiritual correction is necessary. Spiritual drift is inevitable, makes spiritual correction necessary. We need to be corrected. We need to be reminded. We are in constant need of those three great R's. No, not reading, writing, and arithmetic. Renewal, revival, and reformation. We are in constant need of renewal. We are in constant need of revival. We are in constant need of reformation. Why? Because spiritual drift is inevitable. And there is much more that we can say about that. Why is this a burden? Why is there a a burden? It's not just because of the responsibility of handling the word of the Lord. It's not just because of the audience that we are addressing, the people of God. It's not just because of the message itself, which is often one of conviction and correction, but it is also the responsibility of the messenger to be the message. You see, why is it so significant that we knew nothing about Malachi? Because Malachi spoke of the one who was to come, who would represent and speak about the coming of the Messiah, Elijah, who would come. I will send my messenger. And that messenger we know from the New Testament was John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say? A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. He must increase and I must decrease. The weight of the word of the burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord is that the messenger has to decrease so that he must increase. We are to be the message as the people of God. It's as though one uh, preacher said many years ago, and it always struck me, Lord, my youth eclipse me. And the reality is, right, listen, the world doesn't need whatever version of yourself you think is the best. I got news for you. The world doesn't need it. The world does not need the best version of you. It doesn't, really. Because I can tell you what, there are better people out there than you. There are better people out there. So no matter what best version you are of yourself, trust me, there are better people out there. There are better moral people. There are better sports people. There are better academic people, better intellectual people, philosophical people. It don't matter what best version you have, there's someone better than you out there. But what the world needs is Jesus in you. He must increase. I must decrease. The burden of the word of the Lord. We come now to we come now to this section here. We come now to this first challenge. We come now to this the message itself, the meat of the message. And what what is God's complaint with His people? What is the charge? What is the indictment that God has against His people? And I remind you that these are His people. He's speaking of collectively. He says in verse two, "I have loved you." But you say, how have you loved us? I have loved you. Now, you need to understand how significant that statement is. God says, 
I have loved you. And the way he says it here, the force of this in the Hebrew is, I have loved you in the past, I love you now, and I will love you forever. And the people say, how have you loved us? Now, you need to understand something, and and J. Vernon McGee was the one who pointed this out to me as I was reading his commentary on Malachi. He says, you know, you get, you have to go a long time in the history of the human race before you ever hear God say to anybody he loves them. He didn't say it to Adam and Eve. He never said to Adam and Eve, I love you. He never said it to Noah. He never said it to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He never said it to Noah. He didn't say it to Joseph. You have to get all the way into the book of Deuteronomy before you find out that it says there, only the Lord had delight in your fathers to love them. Now, did God love them? Of course he did. He just never said it. Why? Because his actions were the expression of his love. But here he says to the people, I have loved you. And they should have known it. Even in their immediate circumstances, all they had to do was look back into their recent history and see how God preserved them in captivity, how God kept his promise to them, how he brought them back to the land, and how now they were prospering. They were in the land. They were there. They were surviving. They were living. The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. That God had kept his word. But it was almost like they were saying, well, what have you done for us lately? The circumstances had clouded their judgment. They had lost sight of God's goodness. How profoundly different, right, in the New Testament? I mean, when you read the New Testament, you cannot escape God telling us how much he loves us. That Jesus himself says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Paul would say this is how God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And yet how often are we guilty of the very same question, right? The moment something happens to us that we find distressing or depressing, Lord, do you love me? I don't know how many times over the years people have said to me, I don't think God loves me. If God loved me, why would this happen? If God loved me, why would this take place? If God loved me, why would he let this go on for so long? How have you loved us? See, for Israel, God says, Jacob, I have loved, but I have hated Esau. God points them, not even to their immediate past, but to the the history of his relationship with this people, where he sovereignly chose Jacob to be the vessel through which his chosen people would be separated from the nations of the world. That they would have a privileged place, that they would have a privileged opportunity, that they would have the opportunity to be the servants of the Most High. And we read in Romans chapter 3 that Paul would say, then what advantage has the Jew? 
or what benefit is the circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with, wait for it, the oracles of God. In other words, the great privilege, the opportunity that God chose Jacob and his descendants to be the recipients of the word of God, to receive his message, and then to be, as it were, a lighthouse to the people where God would tell Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, some of you reading this, maybe you've read this for the first time, and you've never read anywhere in the Bible before that God hated somebody. And you might, like your brain just derailed off the tracks because you're so commonly familiar with the idea that God is love, God is love, God is love. And here you read, he loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. And it becomes a matter of like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then, of course, a lot of times we look at this and we, and, and it's, it's, it's a very complicated passage because it becomes one of those passages where people talk about election and d- d- divine predestination and all of these things. And I, I want to just comment on that particular issue in the context of this passage, leaving aside how Romans deals with this passage, but looking at this passage for itself, I want to just make a few observations. And when we look at these observations and what's true about this passage in Malachi, it actually will then inform our understanding of what Paul says in Romans. Because I want you to observe here that this is God choosing the people and that there's no mention of heaven, eternal life, or salvation from sin in any of this context. The prophet is speaking of his earthly people and about their earthly inheritance. Jacob is synonymous with Israel, the nation, and Esau is synonymous with the nation of Edom. The election is about blessing and national covenants, not eternal life. Look at the passage. He's talking about how the Edomites were excluded, and because of their wickedness, they are now judged. But here's the thing that I want you to observe. The election here is not about individuals. The elect people who are loved are not necessarily saved in any eternal sense as individuals. There are within the community of the elect Israel, both righteous and wicked individuals. There are those who reject the word of the Lord. And there are those who fear the word of the Lord. This is about a national election, not about individual salvation. But finally, that word hate, right? It still might mess people up, right? It's like, oh man, God hates Esau. That just sounds terrible. I mean, I, I think of God as loving people. I go out and tell people God loves you. And now you're telling me, he, well, there was an exception. He hated Esau. Like, what does that even mean? But see, we, we think of love and hate like emotions. You know, we think of love and hate as emotions. We think of love like this warm, gushing feeling you have for somebody. And it's just like all this affection and just this kind of like, oh, I just can't wait to be around that person. And we think about hate like, oh, I'm going to like, I want to kill this person, right? But in the Bible, love and hate are not really like understood that way. Love is not an emotion. It's an act of the will. 
Love is choosing certain things on behalf of the other person. And many times the words love and hate, especially when they're juxtaposed like this, are used in a form of like hyperbole for the sake of emphasis. In other words, the way God treated Israel is so much better than the way he treated Edom that the way you look at comparatively speaking, it's love on one side and hate on the other. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. We are all familiar with Jacob and how he was, man Jacob, how he was in love with Rachel and how he loved Rachel, but his father-in-law swindled him and had to marry the more homely sister Leah first because she was the older one. And the Bible tells us that Jacob loved Rachel, but it also tells us that Leah was unloved. You can go to the translations and say Leah was unloved. But that's just a kind way of translating the word. The word is the same word that's translated here, hate. Jacob loved Rachel. He hated Leah. Now, did he really hate Leah the way we think of hate? He had seven children with her. Six sons and a daughter. Obviously, he didn't think of her as an abomination. He didn't want her to die. He didn't want to kill her. He didn't want to send her away. He had marital relations with this woman multiple times. But comparatively speaking, when it came to his relationship with Rachel and his relationship with Leah, he loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. It was a matter of degree. And so as we come now to this end of this passage, verse 5, what we see here is that there are questions that God asks of the people. And then there are questions that the people are asking of God. And we're going to pick up with verse 6 next week. But I want to leave you with this thought. That the challenge before us here is that these people have left their first love. They have grown cold, like the Laodicean church. They don't know that they're poor, blind, and naked. Their questions reveal a spiritual dullness. They have an apathetic attitude. They have a selfish service. They have a worthless worship. Maybe there are stupid questions after all, but even the dumbest question becomes a teachable moment in the hands of a skilled teacher. Here, the Lord of hosts turns the stupid questions into our teachable moments. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to meditate in this passage and to consider uh, the word before us. And we would ask, oh God, that you might Help us, Lord, to recognize that spiritual drift is inevitable, that we are prone to wander, which is why we need constant correction, constant renewal, constant reformation. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have loved us. and You've shown us that love on the cross. We pray, God, that we would be refreshed in the meditation on that truth and that we would confess our sins, our casual Christianity our apathetic attitudes, 
our selfish service and our worthless worship. We pray, God, that you might guide us into the truth and then we might apply that to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.